Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! In this episode, the University of Toronto's Eric Schneiderhan drops by to chat about his brand new book, The Size of Others' Burdens, Barack Obama, Jane Addams, and the Politics of Helping Others. In it, Dr. Schneiderhan, a sociologist, delves into the seemingly parallel biographies of two of America's most well-known community activists, Obama and Adams. As we discuss their many surprising similarities, we also explore some of the productive tensions that emerge from a sociological approach to biography, and the many interesting issues that arise from a biographical approach to studying culture and history. Eric Schneiderhan, welcome to Office Hours. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. Reading your book, it's really very startling how much Barack Obama and Jane Addams share in common. But of course, your work is about American culture much more so than it is about the coincidental intersections between these two figures. Most importantly, you write about a cultural paradox that each faced in their work and personal lives. You call this the American's Dilemma. So to start off, could you tell us a bit about that dilemma and how it drew you to compare these two individuals? Absolutely. So I shamelessly uh, drew from many great figures in sociology to come up with this idea. It's not anything new. Um, obviously, The American's Dilemma is a play on the American Dilemma that comes from Murdahl and his work on American society in the 1940s and pointing out the hypocrisy uh, that was going on in terms of race relations. And uh, I also had been reading a lot of uh, Merton and uh, other sort of mid-20th century sociologists. And, uh, and I took my guidance from Merton more than anybody uh, in thinking about uh, what he called ambivalence and dilemmas. Um, you know, we're, we're asked by society to be a lot of things, to be good workers, to be good consumers in a capitalist system, to buy American. Uh, we're also asked to be healthy and uh, to be a good parent. This resonates with me particularly. I have two children. Uh, you know, to be good friends, to be uh, community members, to be engaged, to help others. And these competing pressures really push us and pull us. And this is what uh, Merton wrote about in the 50s. And, you know, the, the, the cultural schemas, the structures may have changed a little bit, but they're still out there pushing and pulling us in different directions. And I found this really interesting. And uh, I particularly found it interesting to think about what people do when they are torn, are pulled in different directions, and they don't know how to go forward. What do they do? What happens? Uh, that's the interesting question for me. And uh, what lines of action do we uh, create uh, and pursue uh, you know, from those, those moments of uncertainty? So that's sort of the, the, the setup for for the book, and so I brought that question, or that set of questions, to uh, these two individuals in their biographies. Yeah, um, I think that I think that dilemma you're talking about um, is not exclusive to just sort of like Jane Addams, Barack Obama, these sort of like very important figures in history. But it definitely resonates with me as well. I thought it was really interesting. But I mean, let's maybe start by focusing on Jane Addams in particular. Um, I don't know. One of my favorite stories from your section um, on her biography comes when she, in 1896, travels to Europe and meets her idol, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy. 
right? And to Adams' great disappointment, that meeting goes pretty badly. Um, could you tell us what happens there? Definitely. And she writes about this in, in her uh, autobiography. And in essence, what, what she did, and, and this was a common thing for, for people of privilege in, in the 19th century, she took a five-month-long uh, trip to, to Europe. And, uh, and she had uh, long admired Tolstoy, not so much for his fiction, but for his nonfiction writing, particularly a book called What Then Must We Do? And uh, so she was really hoping to meet Tolstoy, and it wasn't uncommon for, for uh, people to call on, on others, you know, as, when they were making these tours in Europe. So she, through a connection, met uh, Tolstoy's translator, and Tolstoy's translator offered to take her and her traveling companion to uh, Tolstoy's estate, which is outside of Moscow. And so she's very excited. This is her idol. She uh, goes and makes the trip, uh, goes to the estate, and there's Tolstoy. Standing there, uh, he's dressed in peasant clothing, and uh, and she she recounts this this meeting, and it and it's really tragic. He he listens to her talk, and and all the time he's looking at her her gown, her traveling gown, and uh, and the sleeves. And so he walks uh, closer to her, and he sort of fingers the the material on one of the sleeves, and says, you know, in essence, there's enough material in this in this sleeve. Uh, to uh, make a full dress for a, a little child, mm. a little girl. And, uh, and then he asks her straight up, you know, don't you find the kind of clothing that you're wearing uh, a barrier to, to the people? In other words, like, you know, <laughs> you're wearing this, this sort of opulent clothing, and here you are talking about working with poor people. Don't you find that that gets in the way? And she was devastated. I mean, what, you know, she's, she's probably been thinking about this, this visit uh, the whole time she's traveling, and, you know, lot, weeks and weeks. And, uh, and then he's not done keeps going and um, he starts interrogating her and says well you know where where do you get your food how do you get your shelter um, and you know you, from from the book uh, you, you would know that uh, she's she's quite wealthy uh, has some some land and some income property from her father who had died uh, when she was younger and uh, and in essence Tolstoy says you're an absentee landlord and uh, you know you're you're exploiting people to uh, to wear these nice clothes and to travel to Europe and and uh, whatnot. And so uh, you know, don't you think uh, you know you should be doing it differently? And uh, and that was the meeting. So he basically uh, tore to pieces, and she felt terrible. Uh, she left uh, devastated, and she tried to change things. And so she started reading everything of Tolstoy's again. Uh, and she went back to Chicago and she tried to spend at least two hours every morning working in this new bakery they had set up at Hull House, the settlement house she created. And she was completely torn. She felt like, well, you know, two hours isn't enough. I've got so much else to do. And uh, so she couldn't really uh, follow through and, and fix uh, or, or do what Tolstoy wanted her to. And so she was left, you know, more confused than ever. Uh, but, you know, if you can imagine, like, meeting your, the idol, you know, uh, and, uh, of, your, of, your, of your life and having them uh, rip you apart, it was, it was quite a, a turning point for her, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things, you know, I really like about that moment is that it's more than the meeting of these two historical titans, right? It's also yeah. this clash of cultures. Um, Adams, the American, balancing her American's dilemma, seems like a hypocrite to Tolstoy, who maybe doesn't live in that same ambivalent life world. So I'm, I'm wondering, to what extent do you see Adams's double identity as the product of factors that could only appear in America and, and not in Tolstoy's Russia? 
That's a great question. And, uh, you know, it, there was certainly, from what I know of history, and I'm certainly, I'm not an expert on, on Russian history in the 19th century, but uh, there were definitely competing and dissonant cultural schemes going on. And, uh, you know, unless, and maybe your question could be uh, interpreted also as like, you know, what, how, how much does, the, does this idea of the dilemma travel beyond America? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what's the generative potential of my book? And, and um, you know, unless, unless one relies on sort of absolute faith or like a rigid dogma, you know, one typically feels kind of pulled in a lot of different directions, no matter, no matter what the national context. And so, you know, and, and without a lot of time to think about it. And so the fact that Tolstoy, at least in my view, had it all figured out, it's sort of emblematic of his own privilege to make a choice and to, to, to mm -hmm. make that decision. Because I think most people in his life world, as, as you say, at the time, really could not choose anything other than uh, their sort of, you know, hand-to-mouth subsistence existence. And so, yes, different, different dissonant schemas uh, pulling, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think nonetheless, um, you, you would find, and this, would, this is an open question, I think you would find in, in the 19th century that there was a tremendous amount of change going on, not just in, in America, not just in Russia, but, but all over the world, and that because of these changes, things were topsy-turvy, and people didn't often know what to do. Uh, this is the, the theme of a lot of the work in the early Chicago school, too, that these immigrants who came, they didn't, they didn't have anything to stand on, and, and they didn't know how to move forward because they had given up uh, you know, their, their cultural ties uh, in their homeland and come to a new place, and, and they, they just didn't, they didn't have any schemas to help them. So, so you know, it's, it's an interesting question, and, and in a way, one, I, you know, even though I've spoken for the last two minutes, and I can't really answer, because, uh, but that's the point of the book is that, you know, I would be, I'd love to see someone, uh, you know, investigate these kinds of dilemmas in other contexts, in other, uh, in other societies, and, and see what they find. Well, let's talk about one of those uh, other contexts. The other half of your book is devoted to a bit of uh, biography of Barack Obama, which is probably going to be a lot more familiar to most of our listeners. But yes. could you tell us about what surprised you most as you began to see parallels between his life and Jane Addams? There were a number of things, actually. And, uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me uh, about them both is that they, they, they lost their fathers at roughly the same age. And, uh, and both sort of pivoted on those, on, on those terrible losses and and made changes um and you know just the fact that they they and i was struck by this i they, they both grew up sort of learning privilege to to follow my, my friend seamus khan's idea of like cultivating ease and uh you know sort of you know learning how to be an elite um so that on the one hand they're they're learning this privilege. They're they're meeting these famous people. They're rubbing elbows with the wealthy in their in their uh, societies. But at, at the same time, they both had to work in unique ways over and against gender or racial discrimination, and they they didn't want. Neither of them wanted to pursue the the sort of typical path for their time, whether it was a 19th century woman or a a black man in, in the 1980s during the Reagan years uh, when the economy was growing like crazy. Uh, 
And they both chose community organizing instead. And Obama also rejected the sort of established civil rights movement as a, as a path for, for him and, and really felt it was too corporate. So, and then as I, as I started to dig in, I, I knew the Adams uh, case much in much more detail. Uh, but I, I noticed that they both followed th this sort of uh, cycle, a uh, very similar cycle. They, they chose community organizing and they really did quite well and were successful. Uh, but they learned a lot. They didn't know, they didn't know anything, uh, neither one of them, when they first uh, started. Uh, but eventually they, they got stuck. Uh, they, they couldn't figure out how to move forward. And this, um, this idea of getting stuck, is for, for me, comes from sort of pragmatist social theory, the idea of, you know, we, we move through life in this habitual way, but then we come to these moments of uh, what Dewey would call rupture. And we don't know how to, how to do it anymore, and we have to look around. Uh, and Adams talked about, you know, being perplexed. And so they both got perplexed, Obama and Adams, and, and, they, and they turned to business. They turned to elites. Uh, and in doing so, they were able to get some more things done, uh, but they also lost some of the creative freedom and sort of the magic uh, of, uh, of, of what they were doing and doing best. And then they also decided, uh, and this was striking to me, that, that, to become political. They had sort of avoided politics at, at, in, the, in the early stages, and uh, then decided, you know, um, maybe I have to give something up here in order to uh, scale things up and make change at a, at a higher level. Um, and, you know, maybe most of all, Matt, I was really struck by the fact that 100 years later, a lot of things had not changed in Chicago. Mm. And uh, this is, for me, like, like some of my, my uh, friends from graduate school who are doing work now and writing books, I'm interested in... Uh, and how much things stay the same. Uh, where, you know, a lot of sociologists talk about mm -hmm. change, but you know, it's the same stuff 100 years later, different players, different uh, marginalized communities, um, but, but the same stuff. I mean, clearly you have the welfare state, uh, President Obama's time, but it was still, it, it felt like the same struggle. And, and that, was, that was amazing to me. You know, 100 years later, and here we are in Chicago doing the same things, same struggles, fighting the same fights, making the same choices. So uh, it just seemed like it, it, it was a nice pairing to bring out uh, these larger questions and illuminate them about dilemmas and, and struggles and creative action and, and how we help other people in, in the face of all these things. Um, you know, Eric, I'm just wondering maybe how you got the idea to compare these two particular individuals in the first place. How did that, how did that come to you? Well, I have to give credit where credit is due. My good friend and colleague Dan Silver at Toronto was talking to me at a department cocktail party. And he said, you know, you shouldn't just write a book on Adams. You should write it on Obama, too, because they really have a lot in common. And, and I cocked my head and thought about it and said, that's the best idea I've ever heard. And off I went. And so uh, you know, <laughs> we don't always tell the truth about these kinds of things, but that's the truth. So, so Dan uh, mentioned it as an aside, and uh, I had been completely focused on Jane Addams for, for quite some time, and, and it sort of like, you know, made me look at things from a different direction, and uh, I started to go crazy reading and reading and reading. I knew a little bit about Obama because I used to work in democratic politics in New Hampshire, and so um, I just got really excited, and I thought it was a great way to, to put two uh, different periods of time in, in conversation, to think about uh, different kinds of discrimination, and so, so yeah, uh, all thanks to Dan Silver. <laughs> That's cool. Um, okay, well, you write that while both 
Adams and Obama were each born into a position of relatively high class privilege. They were also each torn by parts of their identity, so gender for Adams and race for Obama, that were and are marginalized in American life. Coming back to the idea of an American's dilemma, do you see a distinction between the dilemma that's produced by what you call the politics of helping others and the dilemma that's produced by living as a privileged minority in America? This is, a, again, a great question. And uh, I guess my answer would be yes and no. I, On the one hand... Even as a as a, a privileged minority, in in your words, you know, it, there's still many contexts on uh, which you don't have access to discourses of power sure. or or the paths to to access power are predetermined. So I wouldn't want to make too much of that sort of you know that that particular social position. Mm-hmm. Um, but more generally, I think. I would say to you that that this isn't a one-size-fits-all concept. Uh, in other words, my dilemmas are not your dilemmas, and and neither of our dilemmas perhaps are are the same as those for for other people in different social positions. I mean, obviously, I I'm in a position of privilege as a as a white man who's a university professor, and but and and you know, and a large segment of society, or they're really just running to stand still and, and may not even have time to think about this stuff all that much. But, but there certainly is a pressure to be, to be many things. And, you know, the parenting one, I think, uh, is perhaps one that, that uh, would, be, would be a common one. You know, we, many of us have children and we want to do right by them, but we also have to make money and, and, and support them and, and, and at least live. And, uh, and also health, you know, we, 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 it's different in Canada where I'm working now, but we all, we all try to be healthy and, and it's hard to be healthy and to work like that and to, uh, you know, to, when you're grinding yourself down to nothing in the, in the sort of capitalist system, it's pretty hard to, to take care of yourself in the way that we're told to. So, uh, you know, if you want to find your own way like like Adams and like Obama did, it's particularly hard. And even as privileged minorities, there were just not that many people uh, in their time and place who could stand up as role models for showing them how to do it differently. And so for Adams, she wanted to continue her education. She wanted to help other people. And women just didn't do that. It wasn't the done thing, and she was told this again and again by anyone uh, who who uh, she spoke with. And so, how do you move forward? And what's particularly amazing about her is, you know, privilege aside, that she she drove forward and kept pushing and pushing and pushing uh, to to find a space where she could satisfy these these. Uh, these urges to to uh, to move over and against uh, the restrictions of her time, and uh, and the same with Obama. I mean, in, in the eighties, and you know, I, I remember that time. It was a it was a time. There was a lot of money going around. There were great jobs, and you know, here's Obama as a very successful uh, black man. Uh, and what do you do if you're a s- successful 
at, at that time, you go and you make a lot of money. Uh, and and this was something that that particularly black men w did not do up until the 80s. And so why wouldn't Obama take advantage of this sort of new this new opportunity, this new this new shifting social paradigm? And uh, but he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to work in business. He hated it. And there's a there's a lot of discussion about whether or not what he was doing was really working in business. He was at this, you know, research consulting firm and, and what have you. But uh, but nonetheless, he 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 felt like it was soulless. It was unsatisfying. But he, he also um, needed to make money. And so he couldn't just, you know, give up everything. And he didn't have Adams's resources. You know, she had inherited money. He had not. So he couldn't just drop everything and set up whatever he felt like he had to. He had to pay to eat. So he ended up sleeping on people's couches, trying to work for Perg in New York, and he hated that too. So, you know, it, it's not like these two, and I, was, I guess going back to your, your earlier question about parallels, I mean, we, we tell these stories about great individuals like they're, like they're rocket ships, right, taking off on these trajectories to the moon and beyond. And uh, it wasn't that way for either of these people. They were, they were fits and starts. They backtracked. They went sideways. They didn't always make choices that we would admire. But, you know, over time, the path is taking them forward, and it's into uncharted territory. I mean, you know, how many people in the 1980s, black men in particular, gave up uh, career paths that led to, you know, wealth and immediate prestige to try to pursue some sort of thankless, community-based job uh, in a city that they didn't know? And, and that's... That to me is is uh, you know moves it, it defies it, it defies the privileged minority label if mm -hmm. you will um, and shows something to me at least personally uh, that's inspiring and and that's the we're not we're told not to be normative in our work as sociologists right we're told to you know to to stick to the data to make claims based on the data and to you know. Don't move, don't go beyond the claims. But to, I, I also wanted to write a book that was that would uh, connect with readers, everyday readers, uh, and uh, and show them how they might do it. And and I think in these two stories, uh, these two biographies, uh, there is a little bit of a clue as to how one how one might be creative, how one might uh, might press ahead when stuck, whatever the dilemmas, whether they're in Russia, whether they're in the United States, whether you're poor, whether you're rich. You know, we all are being pushed and pulled because there are a lot of dissonant structures. Our, 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 social, our, our social world is pretty crazy and, and it's not consistent. And so, you know, on the one hand, you're being asked to do this. On the other hand, you're being asked to do that. And, and they, you can't do both. And so uh, I find that particularly interesting. And, um, you know, distinctions are not, I think, uh, the, for me, focusing on the dilemmas will get you somewhere interesting. And so that's maybe what I would, I would uh, you know, urge people to consider. Not so much, you know, whether it was like this here or like that there, but, you know, just focusing deeply into the context and seeing how people actually act uh, when they're torn. Mm. Um, you mentioned kind of the, the expectations uh, put upon sociologists doing this kind of work. And I have to say, I think you're probably the first guest I've, I've spoken to on this podcast who's focused so keenly on the biographies of individual people. Um, part of the reason for that is maybe that sociologists tend to focus on organizations, institutions, and well-defined social structures, and yet 
some of the most canonical figures in the discipline. I'm thinking of C. Wright Mills in particular. You know, they define the whole sociological enterprise as linking biography and history. So I guess I'm just wondering, how do you see your work situated in the field of sociology as it's practiced today? And uh, what room is there for biographical work like the work you're doing? That's a, uh, that's a good question. I, uh, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I, I guess in a general sense, even moving up a level from the biography, I think my work is part of an increasing body of work that's trying to uh, be more accessible and uh, to use language and cases that resonate with, with regular people and to try to move our, our work beyond the ivory tower to, uh, to connect with, with uh, you know, non-academics, basically. And so the biography for me is, is uh, I mean, I'm de- certainly the book is, is, is categorized, like in a bookstore, as being, you know, you probably find it in the biography history section. Um, but... And, and you're right, for sure, that Mills looms large behind the scenes of the book, um, not just in terms of the, the sociological imagination idea of, you know, intersecting, uh, you know, intersection of biography and history, but, but also in terms of his work on pragmatism. Um, I saw these biographies, uh, the biographies of these two uh, great Americans, as really as sites to explore larger questions. And to... Reject, as I said earlier, that sort of narrative arc, that trajectory of greatness. You know, Obama always wanted to be president. He worked all his life. It was, it was destined to be. Uh, these are, Tilly uh, spoke of these kinds of stories as standard stories, cleaned up narratives with means and ends, and it's all very neat. And, and I see the social world as being really pretty messy, frankly. And, and that comes from, from Mills and other pragmatists who saw thinking and doing as being really intertwined and you don't know where you're going uh you're kind of muddling through and um and i think sociologists might do more to acknowledge and celebrate that that mess and and you know leave leave the sort of parsimony and 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 the clean lines to the economists if you will and and let us acknowledge the context and craziness and I, as I said before, too, I, these, if we focus on biographies, we're really, it's not focusing on the individuals and the properties that they, that they had, the things that they, that they were, but it's more thinking of each of these individuals as, as sets of uh, social relations. Uh, it's a very relational approach, and uh, investigating these relations um, as data and, and so we locate we locate the dilemmas in the individuals but the dilemmas themselves are quite relational and, and it's about uh, you know they're given by structures and and they're performed and they're dynamic and uh, and looking at those relations is really where the fruitful work comes in so these are sort of you know sites for exploring these these relational questions um, and, and as I, I write about this in the appendix, uh, which I put at the end, I tried to keep the theory out of the main text and, and put it at the back for those who, who might want to dig uh, more deeply. 
um, I tried to give up the assumption of a of a unitary society and instead situate the biographies of these two in particular societies in particular contexts and see what lines of action emerge and how they might be different and how they might be the same and as I said to you earlier I there's a lot that hasn't changed I mean it's it's pretty crazy and sad to me how how little has <laughs> how, how little uh, distance we've traveled in some senses in a hundred years and the way we think about poverty the way we uh, help others or don't uh, the way we talk about the worthy and the unworthy you know even today if you look at crowdfunding and how you know people are all over the internet talking about uh, you know how they're in trouble and they need help and and we as uh, you know members of, of society are are giving money uh, in a way to consecrate their worthiness. Meanwhile, lots of other people aren't getting that money, and they're equally uh, in need. So, so it's a it's a funny world we live in. But uh, getting back to the to the question, how, you know, is this is this a work of biography? Maybe. Um, but uh, you know, I, so I guess you could you could imagine uh, others uh, going forward uh, looking at uh, other sort of you know great Americans or, or great figures from, from, from other societies and, and thinking through sociological questions, uh, you know, on the ground within the context of their biographies. You know, for me, I don't even, in a way, I don't even really care where it's uh, situated. I just, you know, I ask uh, questions that I think are interesting and that I think, you know, people want to know the answers to and, and off I go. And so in a way, it's sort of a throwback uh, type of sociology. I think we've become very compartmentalized as a discipline and I'm not interested in staying in one compartment so you know I'm, I'm touching on history I'm touching on biography I'm touching on pragmatist theory uh, you know in American history but I'm also looking at voluntary associations in the state and mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you know uh, maybe I, maybe I can't be categorized and maybe that's a good thing to be honest with you um, I think some of the the most interesting work that I'm reading is is multivocal and interdisciplinary and uh, and you know uses different uh, it's mixed methods so so we'll see but I think uh, for better or for worse uh, it, it is what it is and uh, you know probably uh, not many people will do uh, similar stuff in the near future so I'm I'm an odd duck. <laughs> well, uh, if you're looking for Eric Schneiderhand's new book, it's called The Size of Others' Burdens: Barack Obama, Jane Addams, and the Politics of Helping Others. If you need to, ask your local bookstore clerk, and they will help you locate it in the right section. <laughs> Eric Schneiderhand, thank you so much for stopping by Office Hours. Thank you very much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>